listening to the CIPD podcast series. The Coalition Government is nearly a year into the job and one topic that's repeatedly cropped up in the past 12 months has been fairness at work. Last year's Equality Act, the proposed abolition of the default retirement age and the ongoing debate over flexible working have all grabbed headlines. We saw more on this in the budget and with me to discuss this particularly hot topic, I have three guests who all have strong views about fairness at work and the government's role in driving it. Lynn Featherstone is the Lib Dem Minister for Equalities. Julian Smith is Conservative MP for Skipton and Ripon. He led a review into business regulation before his election to Parliament last year. And Diana Warman is the CIPD's own diversity advisor and an international expert in the field. Lynn Featherstone, let's kick off with a quick definition. How would you define fairness at work? Um, I would define fairness at work as you being able to get on and um, do your work and be promoted and earn a living regardless of where you came from, whether you know where you came from, what your parents did, what you look like, or whether you have children. Diane, I think we, we can all agree, can't we? It's desirable. Fairness is desirable in a civilised society. Is there a business case for it? Absolutely, there's a business case for it. And we would uh, include the issue of litigation and complying with the law on that because of the damage to public reputation. But absolutely the business case because the fairness at work agenda is key to helping people to perform better. So sustaining high performance depends on fairness at work. Julian Smith, is there an argument for saying that tackling discrimination is a zero-sum game? that equality for one group necessarily comes at a cost to another? No, I don't think there is. I mean, I agree with everything that Lynn said. I think the point I've been making in Parliament over the last 10 months is that at a time of significant economic challenge, we've got to balance the um, obvious unfairness that, that is going on for many groups in our society with a need to create jobs and to grow our economy. Diana, causes... The driving forces behind creating a fair workplace, what do you say? I think one of the challenges we have to deal with is the way all of us stereotype people. And the key issues about gender and disability and race are the things everybody notices and cause serious problems. But we, all sorts of other stereotyping gets in the way. So the way we behave at work is vitally important and understanding how to deal with that and respond to it is key. A law is an, a, is an enabling framework that should help us make some progress but won't deliver all the answers. Okay. I mean, Leona Stiles says law, you know, it's there, but who should take primary responsibility for fairness? Is it government or is it employers? It's all of us, actually. Obviously, the government can lay out the frameworks and um, suggest, and well, make laws that control some parts of business, but ultimately, any sensible business will be doing what we are suggesting in law anyway because because we know that equality in the workplace promotes better business and if nothing else would persuade business to to understand the need for equal treatment and equal opportunity it's that it ups the bottom line Julian, you're a champion of small business and, and you're known for your opposition to red tape so would you agree with that? Well I think the issue for small businesses they often don't have a human resource department they have limited uh, capacity in terms of advice and they often don't have the pounds to spend on uh, legal um, uh, help so my message on small business or my request to Lynn and her colleagues in government is that um, 
there's a special case for small business and particularly micro businesses of under 10 people and that there is an argument for these types of businesses that some of the things we're trying to achieve should be um, dealt with in a more informal way and some of the procedures could be uh, put in place in, in a way that allows small business to take the you know the decisions that they need to. So in your terms was last year's Equality Act bad for those smaller businesses? I don't think it was bad but I do think when you look at that act when you look at um, government legislation across the piece uh, from the position of being a very small business maybe running a shop running a pub it's very difficult to access it and it takes an awful lot of time. Lynn special case? Well Julian should be very pleased because uh, thanks to much of his work I suspect there is uh, something called the Better Regulation Committee when you put um, uh, legislation through and it is murder getting things through the Better Regulation Committee. So the nine-tenths of the Equality Act that came in that I commenced in October, we had to prove that we were taking out nine pieces of regulation for every one we were putting in. That was a simplification. In terms of the special case, yes, we have been listening to that argument about particularly small businesses, the consequence of which is that the, the, the government have announced that there is a moratorium for three years on further regulation to small businesses. What is already in place stays in place, and that's just being finalised and finessed at the moment. Uh, because I used to have a small business myself, and I can understand that there are, you know, you don't have the resources of a big business. Nevertheless, you will still do better if you apply the equality principles to a small business as well as a big business. I mean, what do you think, Julian? Is that moratorium going to be enough to pacify the business community, particularly the small business community? Well, I think it was a great move uh, last week announced by um, by the Chancellor in the budget. And, um, you know, I think this concept of principles is something I, I really agree with because I, I think it is on a number of these issues trying to, um, say, talk about principles and, 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 and talk about... Um, the aims of what we're trying to do, but not necessarily legislate to the nth degree. And I think it's that um, sort of transition between what we're aiming to do and actually how it's legislation, how that comes down in guidance to small business, uh, 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 that can be a bit of a challenge. You feel confident that guidance would actually get the job done? Well, no, I think there should be a clear law on equality. But I think how that is translated into guidance, into messages to business, has to, be, has to take into account limited time on behalf of business owners. Diana, we saw the provisions of the Equality Act tweaked in the budget, didn't we? This dual discrimination claims thrown out. Now, I think I'm right in saying most of those multiple strand cases include race. So does this, more clearly it supports growth, but does it push back the race equality agenda, do you think? It depends how you communicate that message, really. It's the messaging that's very important. So you don't want overcomplicated prescriptive legislation, that's true. I think the principle-based approach makes sense. Um, and a lot of um, small employers in particular do do the right thing, uh, which is good news. But I think they need clear signals about the values and the principles because the whole agenda is a value-driven approach. Um, and that's what supports fairness at the end of the day. So I think removing the finessing, is, in a way, has to be communicated in the proper way so we don't suggest it doesn't matter anymore. These things will happen anyway, and the law won't stop these cases being taken forward, but it will just take longer if people feel they've been um, unfairly treated on the basis of a number of different issues, characteristics.
Was that the right way to go, do you think, Julie? Well, I th- as I say, I mean, I think it is about simplicity, making things as simple as possible. Um, and also it's tr- about trust. I mean, I think many small businesses actually have great relationships with their em- employees. I had a small business which employed only women, and the most successful relationship I had in terms of a staff relationship was one where I could speak to um, the one individual about her her child plans and her plans for a family and we had an open discussion and we were able to interweave uh, her plans with our plans the business so I think it's trying to drive this agenda but also trust um, business as well and I think that combination is difficult and there's going to be a tension there but I think my only request is to, to is to also you know, spend for government to trust the business owner as well. What do you think about that Diana? Because clearly you know, employers cannot have those discussions with their female em- employees right now. Should they be able to? Well, I, I support what Julian's saying. I think the only way forward on this very complex agenda is to encourage dialogue and, um, and getting people to talk to each other because that's what helps us to understand how everybody feels. And it also is that the challenge should be to have solution-focused conversations which suit the needs of the person and the business. And if you don't go into that space, you know, you're not going to be successful because law can't prescribe every eventuality. There's no way it could ever do that. But didn't the Equality Act make that more difficult to do? Well, I think it depends on the confidence of the employer and the individual in talking to each other. If you have a lot of confusion about political correctness and so on, then you may have this lack of trust and everybody be scared to talk. But we've really got to break that down because we're in the 21st century now and we've actually moved on on this agenda. So even though people might feel they could get it wrong, I would say we've got to try and have a go and take a risk. Otherwise, progress won't be made. But Lynn, don't you think employers are really exposed now if they try and do that, if they try to be brave and approach their employees and have conversations like that? I mean, there is a real danger for them, isn't there? No, I don't think so. And I I think the whole of this government's push is to get things back to a common sense level where you can have these conversations and you won't be found to be breaking the law if you have them. I mean, the many roundtables I've sat at and listened to conversations it screams out at me that employers who do well are those who actually care about their employees, talk to them, understand their circumstances. And funnily enough, it's easier in some cases, and you almost always find it with small businesses, where that sort of flexibility and understanding of the responsibilities people have in their lives or life events that come into play are understood. By understanding and allowing and encouraging that, you get an employee who is you know, determined to work and do their best for you. So it's a win-win situation. And it can't always be done by law, but I think the law sets the atmosphere and the framework. And it's very, very important for that to be the case. I think where it's been used wrongly or um, come into some the discussions we're having today, like doesn't it, doesn't it cause a problem? Actually, it doesn't if it's used properly. Okay, let's move on to government cuts in the public sector. I mean, given the proportion of women employed in the public sector, this is bound in some ways to drive inequality. How is the government going to offset that? Well, I think the government's done probably more than most governments to understand the impact of the cuts. And in terms of the public sector, yes, with the, you know, the, the majority of people, um, well, actually, the, the pay freeze at £21,000 um, for employees in the public sector means that most of the people who were protected were women. And in fact, in, in the budget was announced that those people will be getting a pay rise as opposed to the rest of, you know, and that will affect women. So I think the government has moved quite a long way to try and understand, along with loads of other measures that the, the government has done, like the relinking of the, the, the pensions link with earnings, which mostly benefits women, taking the lowest paid out of tax 
you know, by raising the threshold, which has happened in the last budget and this budget. That, that takes mostly women and black and ethnic minorities and people with disabilities. Those are the people who are being helped by um, the budget. Diana, do you think government's gone far enough? Well, I think this situation just points to the, the importance of having balance in your workplace because if you don't you're going to get an unfortunate consequence for one particular group of individuals and and that is just bad news for the nation and it's bad news for the business so if you're in the wrong place you're in the wrong place and in the future you've got to make sure you take steps to to not not be there to, to be in a better place so I think that if there are needs for cuts and it's going to affect more women than men simply because of the proportions of women in the public sector there isn't an easy answer on this so um, I'm not really sure if there's if, if there is a quick fix we've seen the coalition backtrack on extending the right to request flexible work haven't we that was due to come in April this month the earliest possible date now, I think, is 2013, isn't it? What's your feeling about that? Well, again, we've always maintained that an inclusive approach to flexible working is vitally important because, from my perspective, um, the future of business has to be their agility to respond to the massive change that's going on all around the world. And most of the businesses in the UK have some connection in the global space. So flexibility and the response levels is vitally important for business. So we need to learn about how to deal with it. So again it's the communication piece that's the problem if we're saying that we can put this on the back burner through the law that could give some employers the view that they needn't respond to this agenda whereas others will just take off and go into the stratosphere because they know it's such a sensible thing to do and they're learning all the time so those that actually are hesitant will miss out in the long run and that's the problem we have especially if we want to make sure UK PLC is going to have good um, um, good productivity then the messaging about flexibility needs to be go for it because it's in your best interest to do exactly that what do you think Julian? do you think that message just actually got home particularly with the smaller end of the business community surely if they don't have to introduce more flexible working they're just not going to are they no not at all and I, I think the message is getting home but it has to get home faster I mean if you look at the report by Lord Davis and the uh, appalling um, statistics there of how many women are on boards on FTSE 250 and 100, FTSE 100 boards. There's a lot of work um, to be done, but um, I believe that, that that doesn't always have to be done by lots of changes to law, particularly at the moment where we, we really need jobs. I mean, I think my my uh, concern at the moment is this year, the next couple of years, we need jobs. We need to get these uh, women and men who've lost jobs in the public sector into work. That has to be the priority. And are there ways um, out with legislation um, in that interim period to show uh, best practice, to show examples and really to um, push this agenda, but maybe not um, uh, with frequent law changes in this particularly sensitive period? I mean, you mentioned Lord Davis's report on, on women on boards. I take it you didn't feel his recommendations were tough enough? Well, I, I liked the fact that he <coughs> decided not to legislate, but I, I as I said in a debate last week in Parliament, I think um, we're in the last chance um, saloon and it's going to be very difficult for people like me who advocate less regulation uh, to um, sort of uh, um, stop uh, future legislation in this area if we don't deal with it. So I think we've got a parliament basically to address this, this issue. Um, I think he possibly could have been um, a little tougher with my old profession of headhunting. That's a very unregulated area. I think there's a lot more that that sector can do in this in this agenda. 
Yes, I mean, the, uh, for those who don't know, Lord Davis's suggestions were about targets, really. There was, there was no suggestion that um, companies would be forced into adopting more women as board directors. Did that go far enough, Diana, do you think? Well, we certainly wouldn't support quotas because it wouldn't work on its own. This is a very complicated issue. And Why won't it work? Well, because there is a lot of issues going on underneath all of this agenda, and just fixing it with numbers isn't going to sustain the permanent change. And when we look at the challenges of, of a boardroom occupation, it's it's complexity regarding the culture and the expectations of the individual, their time poor, and having uh, reflection time is a key issue as well. So we can't fix it quickly. There needs to be a lot of other supportive interventions to create the right atmosphere at that level to be successful. And that build takes time. So I think organisations will need, again, a lot of support, a lot of guidance, a lot of discussion, a lot of networking to actually create the changes that are important. And we know already that organisations that have been committed to achieving change find it really jolly hard to achieve sustainable success. It's easy to lose a 1% gain when one person leaves. So, you know, we have to be very supportive of these organisations with lots of guidance and lots of information. What do you think, Lynn? Are we going to see a different situation, a very different picture with women on boards in 10, 20 years' time, or not really? We better. (laughs) But will we? (laughs) I think we will, actually. You know, I'm out and about um, talking to huge groups of women and male leaders of the massive companies and there is something in the air if you like there is so much work going on in the networks and amongst senior leaders and with Lord Davies report the pressure is becoming unsustainable and Lord Davies is going to meet every six months to review the position so there's no let up and of course um the stick is somewhere in the background, as Julian gracefully r- refers to. And, you know, the, ti- the possibility of legislation. It's a time-limited offer at this point, so they better move on it. Julian, what about the default retirement age? Um, I, uh, what is your feeling about that with your business community hat on? Well, as somebody who employed until recently an 85-year-old, um, uh, it's, it's an interest that's close to my heart. I mean, I do think that the... Um, that change is is a, is a major challenge for business, and it, but it's it's something I suspect uh, you and your colleagues um, at the CIPD can help with. Because I think it does come back to how do you manage your staff, and how do you, I mean a lot of businesses are concerned now on how do you exit staff, um, and I think it will put a lot more pressure on businesses to um, performance manage and to have much stronger performance management in place. Which, by the way, I think will be very helpful on the equalities agenda as well. But aren't you taking a very liberal view compared to most people running businesses? Well. What I was going to say was, I think, again, the, the removal at this time is, is a big challenge for business, and, and it's something that I've had lots of representations about. Um, and Negative ones, uh, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, I think just people feeling that that, that was a, a, a clear opportunity to um, uh, say goodbye to an employee and, to, and, and, and that's no longer there. And I think we will need to help or give guidance to those companies who are dealing with quite a, a, a substantial change. Diana, it's been very unpopular, hasn't it, with a lot of people? Well, with a lot, but also it's been welcomed by a lot. And and the use of the DRA was actually uh, not as high as one might have thought. A lot of organisations operated without compulsory retirement because they needed to keep the talent in their organisations, particularly small businesses. Um, And as you've already said, they can flex very much more quickly. So I think, again, the removal of the DRA is 
absolutely important, the pressing need for change because of the demographic, the talent agenda and so on. We just have to go there and we can't afford to hang back on it. I think the fear factor about performance management is there, but you can't encourage um, organisations to let that continue. It's not in their own best interest. So again, the guidance and advice and the sharing of how to do it, perhaps for those that are worried, um, is, is really the sensible way forward. Lynn, let, let's shift on to um, gender pay reporting. Now, I think it's fair to say you've changed your position on this, haven't you? Pre-election, you were all for it. Not anymore. Absolutely. I have changed my position. Why? Well, um, this, we've moved into an era where we try and get people to do the right thing because it's the right thing. Uh, but it's a time-limited offer, too. We've said we won't... Um, commence, repeal or amend Section 78 of the Equality Act. That's uh, a clause which would make it compulsory to report. And we're working with business, with the unions, uh, to try and come forward with voluntary pay reporting. And we're going to monitor each year how many companies are coming forward and are reporting. Um, if there's no movement, then obviously we're going to look at the stick. But it is it is in their interest. We've, you know, one of the things that happened under the Equality Act is we removed gagging clauses, so people can now talk about their pay, which is a <laughs> will probably be an eye-opener for many people. But, but we have to narrow the pay gap, and we have to be able to see what that is in companies. And, and my advice to business is to, to come forward and report, because it's not about punishment. I think there's a kind of um, an idea that somehow if we see what's going on, that will, that will in some way punish companies. The idea is just to see and to watch their improvement in this agenda. Because as we've proved, and as the OECD says and the World Bank, it is in business interests to close the gender payback. It will improve both the economy of the country and the economy of that business. So on best behavior, but we do expect them to move. But it's been in the interests of business for a long time. It hasn't made much difference. Yeah, has but it? the pressure the pressure is mounting again in all of these areas. It is last chance saloon, and I think at this moment in time, this is the right way forward. But I, as you say, I rightly believe that there comes a point at which you have to intervene. So I'm watching. What do you think, Diana? Yes, I think that the mood music has changed a little bit on this agenda because where we had a lot of um, positive um, views from some of the stakeholders to work together, I think they're now thinking there's a bit of space that they can dig their heels in and not go for the change that's so important. And I think in moving forward on the, on the reporting agenda, we need to make sure we have issues that are important to achieve that change and not just frills that are cosmetic. So I think keeping this conversation going and getting people on board again is something we've got to achieve. Um, the successful organisations so far do it because it makes sense and again it's actually communicating that value to those who are concerned that is key. So again it's a communication message. This is an interesting one. The issue around the messages, this is recruitment really, the messages that employers subliminally take from candidates' names and the fact that people with what we might loosely, very loosely call foreign-sounding names find themselves discriminated against. We've got research on this now from DWP. I think I'm right in saying you're a fan of the idea of job application by national insurance number. Is that it was right? my idea, so yeah. yes, I'm <laughs> definitely a fan of that. And uh, I'm promoting it across government at the moment. How's and having it going conversations. It's going pretty well actually. I think the work for anyone who doesn't know that the DWP did um, was to send out 3,000 applications to advertise jobs in the city but to send twin applications, one with an English sounding name and one with a foreign sounding name 
And no surprise, really, it took nine applications for an English-sounding name to get an interview and 16 for a foreign-sounding name. So case made, really. Indeed. And um, I'm pushing it. Julian, happy with that? Well, I think this is where consensus may break down because, um, you know, I strongly believe that um, we have to have balance between trying to address these major um, issues of inequality uh, with trying to go with the grain of human nature. I think the grain of human nature is you get a CV, you want to know uh, a name and... and, and Why? Uh, well, because you're uh, making an application for a, a job. And I'm not, you know, I, I, I I'm think... I'm sorry, I'm not clear on that. Why does it matter? Well, because if, because if you are interviewing somebody, I think you're, you're, I'm making an application to you and I think you, my name should be on it. I mean, that, that, and I think many businesses would agree with that. Lynn and doesn't you look, look like she you, you, look, you look surprised, but I think <laughs> I it's do. a false, false surprise. No, I, I think Julian's absolutely right. I think people do read a huge amount from a name and that's why they feel uncomfortable about not having a name but that's why it's so important if you like to remove the name so and the work done in America what um, what they discovered this is you know this isn't about um, overt racism because if you know if you get through to an interview and you're interviewed by a racist you're not going to get the job this is about the way the brain works and subliminally rejects that is that which is unfamiliar and accepts that which is familiar. So obviously in, in this country, a foreign sounding name is more likely to be rejected than an English sounding name. And that's what the work the DWP did actually proved. So I think it's very important. It's not, you know, it's, um, it's something that can be done that doesn't cost anything. You know, so I, I would have thought you'd be very in favour. And it's not really regulation, it doesn't change anything. But you just use your national insurance number, for example, instead of your name. And then how will it work with um, people's education background? So if, if I've been we're to a girls' school, will that, will that well then Well, obviously, we're looking or? at removing schools too because there's been so much emphasis on where you came from, what school did you go to. So it's kind of, you're going to be there. The idea is you're there on your merits alone, on your on your actual attainments, achievements and experience in life, that's what should get you an interview. Once you're an interview, you're on a whole other ball game in terms of what people read from, from you. Because I mean, it's an interesting point, because I think as a headhunter and a recru professional recruiter by background, my, my message back would be, we, you know, th there are these various things um, such as n uh, nameless CVs, but ultimately if, if there's prejudice and if there's um, employers who um, drive an unequal agenda to their hiring, um, they will do. They will do that. And what we've got to do is try and address that root cause. And I think some, if we go too far with sort of uh, incremental measures to address it, we may not actually address the root cause. And I think we've got to focus on the root cause of, of why our employers or some employers hiring in an unequal way. Okay. I wish we had more time to chew that one over, but we are almost out of time. So I'm going to wrap this up with just a quick fire round of particularly knotty problems. I would like yes or no from all of you, please, on these. Uh, Diana, should we introduce compulsory quotas for women on boards? No. Lynn? No. Julian? Definitely not. At the moment. <laughs> the caveat so at the end. <laughs> Maternity pay is too generous, Diana. Well, this is an interesting conversation. I think we can't avoid tackling this issue of paternity, paternity pay and enabling both parents to care for the offspring. That's not a yes or no answer. I think we have to review it and make sure that it delivers what we want it to deliver. And I don't like the conversations which suggest women cost too much. But I don't like either is the fact that we have this agenda of, uh, particularly we know this from research, that we won't employ a woman, she'll have children. And that still prevails even now. Lynn, can I, can I have a yes or no, please? 
No, but I think shared parental leave will help enormously because employers will not be able to predict which of their employees will take time off to, for childbearing responsibilities. Julian. Can you reread the question? <laughs> <laughs> Maternity pay is too generous. Um, no. I, actually, I, can I just add that one inequality I believe there is is that at the moment uh, women in the city are able to get a... Um, part of their um, maternity pay based on their million pound bonuses and I do think that is an inequality for low paid workers who are subsidising uh, city workers. So much more to talk about. I'm really sorry we are close on time. One final yes or no. Should we scrap the Equality and Human Rights Commission, Diana? No. Lynn? No. Julian? Not at the moment. And there we have it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for that. A fascinating discussion. I have no doubt we'll be back to these issues again, but that is all we have time for today. Many thanks to Minister Lynn Featherston, MP Julian Smith and Diana Warman of the CIPD. If you would like to know more, you can find the CIPD's own 2011 calls to government in the show notes. You'll find those at cipd.co.uk slash podcasts. Next time, we'll be looking at another contentious subject. What are social media like Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn really doing for learning and development? Join me then. You've been listening to the CIPD podcast series. <laughs>